Well, I didn't plan this uh, text uh, near July 4th, but here it is. So the main point of these verses is clear, isn't it? Everyone must submit to governing authorities. The idea of submitting grates on people in our culture. We respond to such commands by saying, how come? Who says I have to do what you say? We are suspicious. I'm speaking of our Western American culture. That's not true of all cultures of the world in the same way, right? Everybody's resistant to authority. But our culture is particularly resistant to authority. We're suspicious of authority, questioning why we should do what others say. Resisting authority is the bread and butter of our culture. Anna, our daughter, is working at a camp this summer. Some of the kids at the camp aren't naturally submissive. Instead, they want to tell Anna how the camp should be run. They explain to her why the rules of the camp shouldn't be followed on some occasions. They want to do it their way instead of her way. What's the problem with this? The camp isn't a democracy. They they are supposed to follow the rules of the leaders of the camp, but that's not the American way, is it? They're supposed to do what she says and what they're told. But they're rebellious to authority. That story could be told thousands of times in our culture, in our businesses, in our schools, in our churches. Our culture loves to dispute and resist authority. In fact, in our culture, resistance to authority is often viewed as not a fault, but as a virtue, as a strength. Billy Joel's 1978 song, My Life, sums up the spirit of our culture. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. Many people in our culture are proud of bucking authority. Actually, according to Scripture, it is their main problem. Resisting authority is not a light matter. It is the original sin of Adam and Eve. They were commanded to obey God and to submit to his authority. But as you know, Adam and Eve insisted on going their own way. No one was going to tell them what to do, not even God himself. So the refusal to submit to, the, uh, to authority, that's the root of what sin is. People end up going to hell because they resist the authority of God. And that's the story of every one of us. That's my story, and that's your story. We've all resisted God's authority. We've all transgressed what God commanded. We're not just talking about other people. We're talking about ourselves. Jesus Christ is the only person who always obeyed God, who gladly and always submitted to his authority. But that's not all. As the perfect man, he took upon himself the punishment We deserved for resisting God's authority. He took that punishment upon himself 
for our sake and our salvation so that if we trust in him, but not just as a one-time decision, it's, it starts there, doesn't it? Although some of us, you don't know exactly when you made that decision, right? We're not always aware of that moment. But it's not just a one-time decision, is it? Those who are saved are those who place themselves under God's authority. That's what trust means. Trust means that we place ourselves under God's authority and he directs our lives. So that salvation isn't just a blip in our lives and there's no change. We're not saved because of the change in our life. We're saved because we're trusting God to be our authority. Then we're forgiven of our rebellion and our independence. That's what it means to be a disciple, to put ourselves under God's authority and to obey him. And it's clear from our passage that if we're submissive to God's authority, then we'll be submissive to governing authorities. So four reasons are given in this text for submitting to governing authorities. So we see four reasons. And then at the end, I think we see two examples of what it means to submit. So let's look at those Four reasons for submitting to authority. First, God has instituted governing authorities. We read in verse 1, everyone, that's an interesting word, isn't it? Everyone, not most people, everyone must submit to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist are instituted by God. So he's talking about governing authorities were to submit because they're sovereignly appointed by God to be authorities. I mean, the the text could hardly be clearer. There is no authority except from God. Now, are there any exceptions to that in terms of governing authorities? we, We have to remember this text is not a treatise, is it, on government. It's only seven verses. But I I think it's clear when we look at this text and all of Scripture, there's no exceptions. All authorities are instituted by God. Authorities are always governing authorities. That's the context here, isn't it? Government officials are always appointed by God. So the real issue in our relationship to the government, the real issue is not the government, but God himself. If we're not submitting to the authority of the government, we're actually not submitting to God. Now, I just want to say a word. This this text has been very debated. So there's a lot of nonsense out there about this verse, and these verses, I should say. Some say that Paul says here that we should submit to authority because he wrote this under the emperor Nero. Maybe you know that name, Nero, who ended up killing Christians at the latter part of his rule. But the first part of Nero's rule was relatively nice. He was a pretty beneficent as a ruler. So some people say that Paul said this because he wrote this during the good part of Nero's reign, before he saw how bad authorities could be. I want to say that's a really silly idea. No, no, Paul thinks we should always submit to authority because Paul knew how evil government officials could be, for Pete's sake. After all, he read the Old Testament, didn't he? He knew the story of Pharaoh ordering the killing of the Hebrew children. 
It's tremendously evil. He knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar trying to kill Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Most of all, he knew the story of Pilate sentencing to death and executing the most righteous person who ever lived, Jesus the Christ. Paul knew those stories. He didn't have any illusions about government when he was saying this. He knew leaders could be evil. He didn't write this out of a naivete about governing authority. Now, what he wrote here is the word of the Lord for us. The Old Testament clearly says that governments are ordained by God. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, God removes kings. God removes kings and and he establishes kings. God does that. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. I could read many other verses. But Daniel 4, 17, the Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men. He gives it to anyone he, will, he wishes. And he sets the lowliness, lowliness of men over it. So, so God rules, doesn't he, over who's king? He's sovereign over presidents and prime ministers and kings and rulers. There's no exceptions. What, what about the beast? What about the Antichrist of Revelation 13? Read Revelation 13. It says over and over again in that very chapter that his authority was given to him by God. It was given to him. It's a passive verb. God gave even the Antichrist, the beast, his authority without God himself being evil. It's the beast who is evil, not God. And yet God, God reigns even then. God is always sovereign over who rules. And thus, and thus, as this text says, we should submit to governing authorities. Our first reflex, our first inclination, our first response should be to do what governing authorities say. That's, that's really true of all authorities, isn't it? Our first reflex shouldn't be to resist, but to submit. But that leads to a natural question. Since God always appoints authorities, in every case, they're always instituted by God, is it ever right to not do what authorities say? Is it ever right to disobey governing authorities? One can see why one might conclude, well, we should always do what authorities say because God always institutes the authorities. It's clear, isn't it, from Scripture that God always appoints who the governors and rulers and presidents and prime ministers are. But it doesn't follow that we should always, without exception, follow what the government commands. How do we know that? We know that by looking at all of Scripture. We look at the whole Bible to determine what is true. Paul isn't trying to give here a complete exposition of our relationship to the government. He tells us what our natural response should be to authority, and that's to submit. But that doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions out there. 
It's clear governing authorities shouldn't always be obeyed. Let's think of some examples from Scripture. First, I've already, I've already given two of these, right? The Hebrew midwives who were commanded by Pharaoh to put to death the Hebrew baby boys disobeyed Pharaoh. They didn't do it. And God commends them. And not only does God commend them, but he rewards them for disobeying the command of Pharaoh. God is pleased that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not obey Nebuchadnezzar's order to worship before the 90-foot golden statue. They do not obey. And they're willing to suffer death instead of doing what Nebuchadnezzar said. And again, God is pleased with them, and God, in this case, he rescues them, doesn't he, from Nebuchadnezzar's authority. The apostles rightly tell the Jewish authorities who tell them, don't preach and teach about Jesus Christ. The apostles rightly say, we're going to obey God rather than men. We will not obey you when you tell us not to proclaim or preach the gospel. So there are certainly cases where disobedience is the right thing to do. When governments command us to do what is evil, or to worship false gods, or to quit preaching the gospel, we disobey, don't we? We do not do what the government says. Some cases are harder, aren't they? Should Dietrich Bonhoeffer have agreed to participate in the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler? Or a little bit closer to home, was the American Revolution justified? One could argue, if you know the work of John Calvin and others, that that's an example of the lesser magistrates reversing the injustices of greater magistrates. But it's not, if you expected me to go into this, it's not the time or the place today to discuss controversial issues. Some things are very clear. On some other issues, good Christians disagree on how we work this out in particular. In any case, the focus, the emphasis on the text isn't to look for exceptions, is it? The focus is on submitting and doing what God requires. That brings me to the second truth in the text. We should submit to governing authorities because it's for our own good. We submit to governing authorities out of self-interest, a a godly self-interest. Verse 2, so then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. It's a little bit hard to know here. Is the judgment the final judgment, or is it the temporal judgment of the government? Or, or, or is it the case that that temporal judgment of the government anticipates the final judgment and represents it? So that, that's a little bit of a difficulty. I'm not quite sure myself. You make up your mind and, and you think about that. In any case, the main teaching of the passage is clear, isn't it? It's not a good thing to resist authority because you'll get judged. You'll get punished. Certainly in one sense, the government, even if it's a 
temporal punishment represents the arm of God. We see the same idea in verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have its approval. For government is God's servant for your good. Again, Paul's speaking of what is generally the case, isn't he? Usually, not always, usually if we're doing what is good, civil authorities will commend us and approve of what we're doing. If you're driving down the road and you're observing the laws of the road, you're not nervous if a police officer drives near. In fact, we should be thankful that there are police officers on the road and in other situations, shouldn't we? Because they're guarding us and protecting us. There are some neighborhoods in our cities where lawlessness reigns And you can end up in one of those situations and you'd be very thankful that a police officer or police officers are present to help you out. I've had people in our congregation tell me stories of that in even the last couple of weeks. If they're there, it's helpful. Uh, Since it's near July 4th, I thought it would be appropriate to say something about our own country here in the United States. Certainly the United States, like every other country, every other government, is, is flawed. We, we think of our history regarding slavery. And certainly other evils have been perpetrated by our country as well. Still, we have many, many reasons to be thankful for our country. When it comes to governments, and sometimes Christians aren't very good at this, We need to think not in absolute terms, but in relative terms. I'm not advocating a relativistic morality. But when it comes to government, we need to think in relative terms, not absolute terms, because there is no perfect government out there. And the United States, with all its flaws, has been a remarkable force for good in the world. And being citizens of this country is a great blessing. I think that's just a fact, and we thank God for it. I remember many years ago when I was a student at Fuller Seminary. This was in the early 1980s. And one of the students at the seminary, I was discussing with him various matters, and he told me that the United States and the then Soviet Union, of course it no longer exists, now that empire has been broken up, but he told me that the United States and the then Soviet Union were morally equivalent Equally bad, is what he was saying. Well, I told him, I think that's nonsense. (laughs) Of course, the United States has flaws and has perpetrated evil, as I've said, but but it's not even close historically to the former Soviet Union. Stalin alone killed 20 to 50 million. We don't know how many. 20 to 50 million people. We're not saying the United States is free of all evil. But it's just historically wrong, isn't it? And pretty nonsensical to say they're morally equivalent in that sense. Such has not happened in the United States. We can be thankful in the providence of God for the United States. We don't worship our country. We worship God. We don't deny the evils that it has committed. We recognize 
if we're paying attention, we recognize we may be on the cusp of great evil in this country. We're, we're, not, we're not going in a good direction. We, we recognize that, don't we? Who knows what will happen? There's no guarantee for the future. Yet, we can be thankful on a day like July 4th for what God has done in the United States and for the blessing of being a citizen here. For the last 240 years, nearly, God has blessed the United States remarkably. Third, we should submit to governing authorities because those who do evil will be punished. Uh, I'm looking at the second sentence in verse 4. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it that is, the governing authority, does not carry the sword for no reason or in vain. For, go- for the government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. God instituted governments to restrain evil. Again, governments don't do this perfectly, do they? Some countries, as we just talked about, are more just and righteous than others. Still, government is God's servant that inflicts wrath on those who do what is wrong. Notice the language here of government being God's servant. Government is God's minister. God is using the government to fulfill his will, even though it's imperfect. It is still fulfilling his will, isn't it? It's not that God is imperfect, but the government is imperfect. And yet God's accomplishing his purposes through it. Without, without absolving governments of the evil that they do. God uses governments to restrain evil. Governments are an agent of what is often called common grace, to restrain anarchy. Without government, that's what societies would descend into. And if you want an example of it, we can think of the country of Somalia. Basically, Somalia has no functioning government for a number of years now, And that country is basically anarchic. There is no rule of law. That's not, that's a hard place to live. Some Christians may be called to live there, but that's a hard place to be when a society becomes like that. If you, if you disobey the moral norms of government, you should be afraid because of the, the government will punish you. It becomes the temporal agent of the wrath of God. Paul says here the government doesn't wield the sword in vain. So, so when he speaks of the sword there, is, is, the, is it the sword of war? I don't think so, because he's not thinking of governments waging war here in context. It, in the context, it's a sword to punish the citizens for, for evil that they do. So, so I think the image of the sword has in mind the government's agency in inflicting Death, capital punishment, on those who do what is wrong. The government's role in depriving of life those who merit such a punishment. I I think the background for what Paul says here is in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. That, that, That verse, Genesis 9, verse 6, is part of God's covenant with Noah. Here's what the Lord said to Noah. Whoever sheds... The blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So that passage is short and pithy, 
but it's meaningful, and I want to just examine it phrase by phrase. So let's look at it. Whoever sheds the blood of man. That means whoever murders another person. In context, he's not talking about accidental killing. Whoever murders another person intentionally. The Lord then says, if that happens, by man shall his blood be shed. What this means is other human beings, that is, governing authorities, should deprive the person who kills another person intentionally with malice aforethought, they should deprive the person of his or her life. In other words, capital punishment should be practiced. In other words, capital punishment is just. Is that, does that still apply to today? I think so. Romans, it's in Romans 13. I think it's clearly taught there. Secondly, the command is found in the Noahic covenant. And that covenant applies to human beings after the flood. But third and most important, even if you disagree with those first two reasons, I think third and most important is the justification given for the command in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Because Moses writes there, this is why the command should be observed, for God made man in his own image. Do you see what the Lord is teaching here? Those who murder others intentionally with malice aforethought should be put to death because they kill someone made in the, or I should say murder, because they murder someone made in the image of God. That is a horrifying thing to do. That is a great evil. It is a horrible and terrible act to deprive someone else of their life who is made in God's image. It's so serious that the government should deprive that person of their life. Such murder should not be tolerated. I remember teaching a class on Romans years ago in Minnesota. We were looking at this passage, and I said the same thing I'm saying today. And one of the students replied, evangelical student, he said, no, 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 no. It's wrong to practice capital punishment. Because if the government kills murderers, then the government kills people made in God's image. If the government kills murderers, they kill people made in God's image. Now, that's a very clever comment, isn't it? That's even insightful at one level. But do you see what's going on in that comment? That person is actually substituting his own reasoning over against what the Bible says. So what he said makes sense, doesn't it? It's not an incoherent comment, but it subverts actually what Scripture says and it substitutes his own reasoning. Our job when we read the Bible is not to put forward our creative reasoning, but actually to pay attention to what texts say. And what he said is not what the text says. It says just the opposite of what he says. It says... Because human beings are made in God's image, if someone takes the life of another human being, their life should be taken from them. 
There's also a very important connection here between Romans 12 and 13. Not all of you were present last week, but last week we saw, Paul says, don't avenge yourself. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Leave vengeance to God on the last day instead of taking it into your own hands. Our job is to pray for others, praying that they'll repent and be saved. But we have to take Romans 12 and 13 together, don't we? So those two passages bump up against one another for a reason. Personally, we must not take vengeance into our own hands. We leave it ultimately to the wrath of God. We must forgive instead of hating and pray for others to repent and to be saved. But that doesn't mean that the government should forgive evil. Governing authorities are to avenge evil. That's the very same word used when he says, don't avenge, don't avenge personally. But the government is to avenge evil. The government is to be an agent of justice. They, they, they don't contradict here, do they? Personally, no vengeance. Pray for forgiveness. The government has a different responsibility and a different function. Of course, the justice of the government isn't equal to God's. Governments make mistakes, don't they? The justice of government is provisional and sometimes wrong. But the government is an agent of justice in this present evil age. I experienced the truth of Romans 12 and Romans 13 in a student I had many years ago now at Azusa Pacific. I was counseling this couple that was engaged to be married. They were in their early 20s. She was probably 4 feet 11 and a, maybe maybe she was 100 pounds. She uh, was a person who really loved the Lord Jesus Christ. One beautiful and sunny Los Angeles Sunday afternoon at 4.30, she had her screen door open because it was a nice day and it wasn't so hot out that you shut all the doors. It was 4.30 and a guy came in through the screen door and he asked for a drink of water, but he proceeded to rape her. What a horrific crime, even to this day. It still makes me angry when I think of the fact it's the third time he raped someone. Still, I was so struck by the student. She wasn't. She wasn't full of bitterness and rage towards the person who violated her. She prayed for his salvation. She was free. Seriously, I was so amazed from bitterness and revenge. I think typically that's a long struggle. And I'm sure she struggled, but largely she was free of that. I was amazed and astonished at God's work in her. But she did something else as well. And the other thing she did was equally right. She identified him in a lineup and testified against him at a trial. That's right as well, isn't it? Because that person needed to be put away 
for the sake of justice and so that he didn't do this to other people. Both are right. Romans 12 and Romans 13. Personally, no vengeance, no hatred, no bitterness. How hard that is. How hard that is. You know that from just hearing that story. Incredibly hard. But God gives grace, doesn't he? But also, the government has a responsibility to punish that person. And she had a responsibility to testify against him for the sake of justice. That's what Romans 13 is talking about. As Christians, we're to be ready to forgive and must never take justice into our own hands personally. But the government must punish injustice and apply the sword to those who deserve death for their crimes. Fourth, We should submit to governing authorities to maintain a good conscience. Verse 5 says, Therefore you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. We We shouldn't obey only because we're afraid of getting into trouble. That's what he's saying, right? We should obey because we'd love to do what's right. We should obey because of our conscience towards God. We should obey because we want to please God. It's not just negative to avoid punishment. He does say that, doesn't he? But it's more than that. We want to please God. We want to do everything in Jesus' name. We want to glorify God in everything we do. Obedience is not only a duty, but if we love God, it's a delight. Okay, the passage closes with two examples. Two examples of what he's talking about in verses 6 and 7. And for this reason, you pay taxes. That's the first one. Since the authorities are God's public servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes. Tolls to those you owe tolls. Respect to those you owe respect. And honor to those you owe honor. So there's the second one, honor. So so here's our two illustrations. Taxes and showing honor to everyone, especially government officials here. So let's look at those two examples briefly. First of all, what does it mean to submit to government? Paul gives us two examples. He puts some feet on this. It means it means you pay your taxes. Jesus taught this as well, didn't he? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Cheating in the matter of taxes, cheating in the matter of tolls, driving through a toll, right, and not paying, that's not pleasing to God. God calls upon us to be model citizens and to pay what we owe. We can't say, well, I won't pay my taxes because the government wastes its money. Or I won't pay my taxes, or at least not all of it, because the government gives some money to Planned Parenthood and that supports abortion. So I'll just deduct that much. Or or we can't say, I won't pay all my taxes because the government collects money for social programs that I don't agree with. Or, or I won't pay all my taxes because the government pays too much money for the military. Paul isn't saying pay your taxes insofar as the government is right and just. It's hardly the case, is it, that the Roman government was a model of virtue and that everything they were doing Paul approved of? Certainly not. Certainly not. The Roman government perpetrated many evils and wasted tons of money and yet you were still supposed to pay your taxes. There's no exemptions given here. We're also commanded to show respect and honor to those who deserve respect and honor by virtue of their office. 
Show respect to the emperor. Well, you know some of the emperors were horrifically evil. I won't go into the details, but read about them. Sexual sin that boggles the mind amongst some of these emperors. In terms of their lifestyles, many of them lived in a way that was shameful. We may disagree with leaders passionately, and we have the right to do that in the American Republic, but we're to treat them with respect and dignity. Sometimes the language used about governing authorities, even by Christians, is vicious and demeaning and ungodly. That is never right. It is never right to demean leaders, even if we totally disagree with what they're doing. When Paul was in prison under the Roman procurator Felix, you can read about this in the book of Acts, he preached the gospel to him and he warned him about judgment and self-control. But he treated Felix with respect and integrity as a person. When Daniel served under Nebuchadnezzar, no godly man, he served under him even. He was in the government, an idolater and an evil man. And when he got a vision that Nebuchadnezzar would be judged, what did Daniel say to him? He didn't say, yes. He said, I, I hate to hear that about you. You need to repent and turn to God. He showed a concern for him personally. I hate to hear that about you, but you need to repent. If we disagree with government leaders, we must still respect and honor them. We're to honor police officers, sheriffs, judges, and those in political office because of their office. So we return to where we started. We are to honor authorities because they stand in the place of God. The Bible is clear. If we don't submit to human authority, we don't submit to God. Resisting authority in our culture seems exciting and daring and brave and liberating, but the Bible says it's enslaving. It's not liberating. It's enslaving to resist authority. So I just close by saying, have you discovered the joy of obedience, the joy of submitting to human authorities before God? Because there's a joy in submitting to God himself. We don't submit because we're slaves, First Peter says. We submit because we're free. We submit because we know God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that instructs and corrects us in every part of life. And Lord, we rejoice in the truth communicated to us that submission to you, obedience, submission to authority actually frees us doesn't enslave us, but we're free. We're free because we belong to you, because you've forgiven us of our sins, because we're new creatures in Christ. And Lord, help this freedom to be ours as we live it out by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.